Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and down in the great state of Texas is Aiden, Aiden Anasta. Hello. Uh-huh. And uh, we are going to be talking about, well, what this topic here you have, you are saying is information structure. It looks like the papers you talking about is mostly about focus right it's both topic and focus are both parts of information structure and i like talking about them together because they don't usually make a whole lot of sense independent from each other um you can investigate the behaviors of each separately but especially for this purpose where you know we're kind of doing an overview of the whole thing it makes more sense to me to talk about topic and focus together because they're kind of complementary categories in how all this works. So I, I just sort of think of information structure as one big topic, pun not intended, mm-hmm. um, one sort of singular unit. And within that, there's there's a bunch of stuff that's going on. Yeah. Um, before we get into that, um, I will note that you are one third of the theory neutral podcast yes indeed <laughs> yeah and uh i just wanted to highlight that because i have uh listened to all of your episodes and i highly recommend it um i will say one thing about theory neutral is that like most of the language podcasts out there uh a lot of them are hard to hold by interest cuz they're all tailored to general audience which there is nothing wrong with that. That's absolutely fine. But this is theory neutral. It's like a an academic reading group. Yeah, e- effectively. Yeah, and so you're you're reading original research and talking about it, and it's a lot like things that we do on Conlangery. In fact, I've like before theory neutral happened, I was thinking about maybe I should do a Conlangery reading group. <laughs> type episode but um you guys got onto that not in a conlanging way specifically but it's useful i think and i think people will enjoy it yeah all three of us are conlangers and so we're not explicitly coming at it from a conlangy perspective but the reason that we're like it's a it's a podcast about typology primarily and so we mm-hmm. go and read typology papers and try and get a handle on how do things work in the world's languages yes and the reason that we care about that is mostly cuz we're all conlangers yeah and uh the second episode was was uh one that sticks out to me because it had a very formative paper for me when i read it and came to the understanding that pitch accent is like a nonsense category. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> anyway. I've been on a soapbox about that for years. Um, yeah. Yes. If you have if you have other things you want to introduce about yourself before we get into the topic, you can talk about that. I mean, not particularly. I'm yeah. on <laughs> Yeah. I'm on Reddit. You can talk to me. Like that's about all I have to say. So <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. So with all that said, let's go on to information structure. Yeah. And Aiden, I will lend let it to you to explain this because <laughs> uh, you wrote a whole thesis on this and, and probably know much more about it than me. 
Yeah, I, I wrote a master's thesis on a very, very particular part of it. But um, I don't know. Information structure feels like to me it's probably the most unfairly neglected part of linguistics in general, both in the conlanging community and in just the wider linguistics community. Um, it feels like that's getting better recently in both places, but still, it's like for something that is as fundamental to the way that language works, the amount of understanding there is out there about this, and sometimes the amount of understanding that it exists at all, is remarkably small. And I think that's because my, my personal hunch is because languages in Europe, languages in Western Europe, I think maybe especially, but in, in general, like the languages that linguistics started studying, the languages that a lot of people start studying, don't do information structure marking in particularly obvious ways. It's either through things like word order and prosody, which are easily just ignored, and you get things like, you know, oh, this language has free word order. It's like, well then why is it changing? Like, what does the change mean if you can change it? And people just have kind of ignored that. Or they do things like English, where there's almost no way to mark this stuff at all, and you just kind of have to imply it through other categories. But every language has to be able to do this stuff somehow, even if it does things like English, where it just kind of hints at it through other things and some prosody and so forth. And other languages have this as just like, yeah, we just mark it morphologically. It's just there. That's just what this marker does. And mm -hmm. for years, linguists and other people have struggled to understand them because they're not coming at it from an understanding of what information structure is. You get things like people describing markers as emphasis, which I am fairly convinced at this point doesn't actually mean anything. Um, mostly it mm -hmm. means... I don't have any training in discourse beyond or in, you know, grammar beyond the sentence level. And so I can't figure out what this means. So I'm going to call it discourse or emphasis because I don't know what emphasis means either. But there's a lot of actual really clear categories and clear functionality in here that is absolutely worth being aware of, even if your language ends up doing things like English does and not really strongly grammaticalizing any of this stuff. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Which English does definitely mark focus with with prosody. It uh, does. Which is, yeah, which I think that's another element in you're talking about European languages often use prosody. And mm -hmm. prosody is something that people do not pay much enough attention to. Um, and we do have one article that is going deep into um, how focus marking interacts with prosodic structure and prosodic mm -hmm. units, mm -hmm. which I think at some point I'm going to want to do an episode on uh, prosodic hierarchies and such, because that would be, that would be very invaluable. For sure. And I don't, it's honestly, that's something that I don't understand as well myself, the, the prosody side of things. My, my, um, master's thesis on this was on the morphological marking side where it's just like patently obvious that this is being marked because there's a marker there but yeah and also with with prosody it's very hard to represent in like a written document and so mm -hmm. if you're writing down example sentences that somebody else might later come and do some research on prosody is probably just absent from your transcription right. And you don't, you don't do it, the brackets or anything. You yeah, <laughs> exactly. Especially if like you're not a 
actually researching anything that prosody you think would have anything to do with you know so if somebody wants to come back and say oh well we're, we want to investigate focus for example in your language with your data maybe there's not actually any data about it at all in your data because you just ignored all the yeah. prosody yeah which it's you know it's kind of six one half thousand of the other like there's not really a way to mark it conveniently in writing but on the flip side it's something to be aware of you know i've definitely read papers where i was like i bet that this example sentence means something other than what the author thinks because i bet there's a prosodic thing going on here that the author just disregarded when trying to understand it yeah uh, mm -hmm. maybe uh, there's quite a few cases where the somebody said that there is this is this category does not exist or something or is not mm -hmm. marked at all that yeah. uh maybe it is actually marked in a way that you didn't pay attention to <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. So to jump into some of the, the basic concepts of information structure, information structure is basically how the contents of a sentence are connected to the wider discourse environment. So things like, is this referent new information? Is it old information? How does this referent and the things you're saying about it connect with what you've already been talking about? That sort of a thing. How do you basically walk your listener through the connection between your ideas it's you know so it's it's the kind of thing you can't investigate if you're investigating sentences just in a vacuum in isolation because it fundamentally is about context it's about how the things connect to the context um and there's two primary categories within information structure there's topic and focus where the topic is basically some referent. It, it basically has to be a referent. You can kind of get around that sometimes, but it's it's basically a referent that is already present in the discourse somehow, has already been introduced, or you know is at least available to the listener. And right. then the focus is new information supplied, quote, about that topic. And those definitions are kind of squishy, especially topic- it seems like, like people have been trying for a very long time to get a nice, clean, like solid definition of topic. And the best that everybody can say about it is it's what the sentence is about. But that seems to work as long as you're not, you know, trying to do anything particularly formal. And then focus is there. There's been some more progress on that front in terms of getting a nice, clean definition. But it basically boils down to the new or at issue content being said about whatever the topic was, or maybe there's not a topic sometimes. But it, it's the new information being provided or the at issue content being provided that's kind of like the main purpose of the sentence, in a sense. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. There's there there are people who talk about different types of focus, but yes. I notice in your in your paper you're just kind of like ah I'm we're not we're just going to talk about focus in general because it's not sh certain that there are different types of focus. I strongly suspect there are. I I'm I'm pretty yeah. well convinced there are. And in fact, in the course of writing my thesis, I stumbled across a paper where a guy had sort of ended up creating a hierarchy of focus meetings just to explain like how focus marking ends up working in Duke and languages. And like, that was it. And I was like, this seems like a way wider concept than 
he actually realized at the time that like there's sort of because you have different kinds of focus meanings it really seems like focus can do different things like sort of the most basic and simple focus is the answer to a question where did you go i went to the store so to the store is just a sort of simple answer focus but you also have things like contrastive focus like no i went to the store not to some other place or corrective focus um, and sometimes even just like it's the store I went to as opposed to every other possible place I could have gone to. And so it seems like there's kind of this hierarchy of answer focus and then like, what's the word? Answer focus and then uh like restrictive focus like this one and not all the rest of them and then sort of at the highest level the most focusy is like corrective or contrastive focus and you kind of have the same thing in topics too where you have you know at the very most basic it's just a continuing topic we were already talking about this we're still talking about it i just put it in here because we kind of have to have it for grammar reasons then you have like um, sort of a switch topic of, well, we weren't talking about that. We were talking about some other referent. And now we're talking about this thing. So like to carry the topic over. And then at the highest level, you have contrastive topic, which is like, as for this, this thing is true. As for that, that thing is true. Yeah. And there again, there seems to be this sort of hierarchy of, of topicality weight to it. And I will say all of this is my own theory, but it seems to make a lot of sense. And it seems to explain some like phenomena. Maybe someday I'll write a paper about it, but I, today that is not this day. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's there's too many things to write papers about. But um, yes, the thing about the um, different types, I do think that that's an interesting question on the research side. That. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's possibly things that are missing because it seems like people get a lot of examples of the answer focus mm-hmm. because it's easy to elicit. It's extremely easy to elicit. You 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 ask ask somebody different types of questions. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did John go? Who who went to the store? Mm-hmm. Who got what mm-hmm. at the store? You'd have to you have to just add question words and then and you specifically did call out that like you think that question words in general are just tend to be always focused yes so that that's a thing i think that's worth mentioning is that question words because you have you know that's what's at issue basically in a question the question word is what's at issue Many languages that have morphological focus marking will mark them as focused or can mark them as focused. And sometimes you get differential interpretations there. But in any case, it does seem to be that at least by the default, if not fundamentally, question words in content question sentences are inherently focused just the same way that their answer phrase in the response is focused right mm-hmm. uh, so it's basically just like you're likely to get focus marking on a question word because it seems to be that question words are things that are going to take focus just because mm-hmm. it's it's like it's the request for new information if we're talking about new information yeah exactly 
And sometimes you can use that to get different interpretations. So like, you know, who did it versus who was it that did it in English? They mean slightly different things. And in another language, the first one may not have a focus marker and the second one may because the focus marker is is doing like a restrictive of all the people yeah, that yeah. were there, which is the one that did it kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's actually move along a little bit. Uh, so you've talked about the, the hierarchy thing a little bit. Mm -hmm. Since we're conlangers and we want to <laughs> know, um, like, we want to figure out, okay, what are the things I can do in my conlang? What are the options that I have for my conlang? Mm -hmm. Let's go on the different ways that you mark topic and focus. Yeah. So there's a bunch. It seems to me like there's sort of there's three kind of fundamental options and then a fourth semi option. You can do it with prosody, you know, the difference between I saw the guy and I saw the guy. That that is a meaningful difference in English. You can do it with word order, which is a very common thing in other languages. English does it for contrastive topics. So, you know, you I've seen before, but John I've never met. You and John there are contrastive topics and they get fronted because that's how English marks contrastive topic. Um, or you can have morpholo morphological marking, which English doesn't have, but you have you know, other languages that do this. Um, what's a good example off the top of my head, which is, I feel like this is stupid because I wrote a master's thesis about this. Um, uh, I can find a highlight maybe. <laughs> yes. Uh, let me um, let me see here. Look at Japanese is an okay you. example, but it's not a great example. Oh, um, I have a good example. Or you have morphology, which, for example, like the UQN languages, basically most things that are focused are followed by a focus marker. Um, right. And But you can mix and match these things. You don't have to right. pick one and then just go with that that one on its own. Uh, you can have prosody, prosody and word order, like in English contrastive topic. You know, you I've never seen, but John, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, you can do both at the same time. You can do all three at the same time. Um, in, it seems like to be, you're more likely to get more of those things at once for things that are sort of higher up those hierarchies that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. You're going to have not just like one versus two versus three. You may even just have simple things like more of a word order change or a longer marker morpheme. Um, like in, in my Conling Media which I'm doing a bunch of information structure stuff with, the basic simple topic marker is so reduced that it's basically just a feature bundle that attaches to the last consonant and makes it a voiceless right. fricative. But for contrastive topics, it's a whole like segment that usually has to have an epithetic vowel after it and creates a whole syllable marker. And so there's a clear like weight difference. There's one that's that basically you know, barely does anything. And there's one that's a whole extra syllable. And so the, the one that's the whole extra syllable is for the more intense topic meaning, basically. Yeah, I, I think I think a good way to summarize this is like literally any time. I don't know of any exceptions to this. Any time we say that something can be marked morphologically in mm -hmm. a language, in linguistics, you almost always are going to find examples that go all the way from just like feature changes or internal stem changes to fully separate particles that are independent. Yep. Yep. When something is marked morphology, there's, there's all kinds of things just because 
that's the way that the process of grammaticalization works is something yep. loses its content meaning and becomes functional. Then later it becomes phonologically bound, becomes a clitic, then becomes an affix and all of that. So, uh, you know, eventually can be lost except for like a tone change. So, yep. Um, yep. yeah, it's it's. You, you, you always consider yourself having the freedom to mark these things as you mm -hmm. wish, as long as you have an idea that it could be a morphological category. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about grammaticalization pathways um, later on. But first, I think it's worth mentioning that there's kind of different kinds of focus structure. There's different kinds of focus patterns that sentences can have, and they can get more marked both by prosody and word order and by morphology in different ways. So it's worth sort of keeping this in mind. Um, the sort of the most basic one is what historically has been called predicate focus, because usually by default, the subject is, uh, you know, the topic is a subject because those are tied together really tightly generally. Yeah. Um, and then everything that isn't the topic is the focus. And that's sort of the way I think about it is there's a topic and then everything else that isn't is the focus. So mm -hmm. this is sort of the most default unmarked sentence. I went to the store yesterday. What did I do? I went to the store. Like that's, that's sort of how it is. What we often are, think of when we say focus specifically is what's called argument focus, where mm -hmm. The focus is specifically on one argument. Usually it's a noun or noun, you know, noun-like phrase, referent phrase. Sometimes it can be on like an adverbial or something. And then that's the focus. There may be a topic elsewhere and then everything that isn't the topic or the focus is just kind of there because we need it to be there. It's not really either. That's often where you get the, the heaviest and most obvious focus marking. But there's a few other kinds as well. There's verb focus, where the verb itself and the action of the verb is in focus. So, no, I saw him. I didn't hear him. That's verb focus. Right. It's the verb that's focused. And that often behaves very differently from argument focus, even though intuitively it seems like it would be kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. You also have sentence focus, where the entire sentence as a unit is in focus and there is no topic. Um, you get this in presentation contexts, like there is a blah. But you can also get this in situations where, you know, somebody asks, what happened? And they have just no background or context or anything. And you say, oh, John saw a bug, where John seeing and the bug are all new to the discourse and all sort of get introduced as one unit sentence describing the situation. And then the last and sort of weirdest kind of focus is what's called virum focus sometimes, where the focus is actually on whether or not the sentence is negative or positive. So oh. I did see him or no, I didn't see him. And languages can handle all of these in somewhat different ways. Um, virum focus and verb focus are kind of afterthoughts in a lot of ways, both, you know, in science and also like in the functioning of the language, often something else is co-opted to manage that. But they, they all sort of get marked in different ways. And sometimes like sentence focus is a, is a fun example where languages that do this through word order, sometimes sentence focus is literally just, we put the subject somewhere that's not a topic position and now it can't be the topic. And so you, the only interpretation is that there's something with focus going on here. Yeah. But yeah, so there's, there's a bunch of things to keep in mind. Verb focus sometimes is as simple as we turned the verb into a noun, focused it, and then put the verb for do as 
you know, the verb that is taking this nominalized focused verb as its object. But you right, can do other right. things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's investigate different languages. The Verum focus mm -hmm. is interesting to me just because of the structures I have seen for it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, in in the in that case, like usually the affirmative of a sentence, the positive of a sentence is unmarked. Mm -hmm. So for the negative, it's easy to like put some kind of a focus on the negative marker itself. Yeah. Sometimes it's just prosody, but yeah. Yeah. Unless mm -hmm. unless you have like inflection for for negatives which you know maybe mm -hmm. we could look at japanese and see how <laughs> they do that uh but um but for the positive you know english you add do support in order mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. have something to actually stress um mm -hmm. in spanish you add c uh mm -hmm. before the verb the mm -hmm. the it feels like it's probably going to be something that you're going to be often adding something in order yes. to make yes. it work. One of, the, one of the most interesting ways I've seen to do this is in some West African languages where I don't remember exactly how it works out, but the end result is you double the verb. And oh. it's not just a reduplication because one of the copies of the verb is somewhere else in the sentence. I don't remember the details, but it might be like, I hit him hit, you know, as yeah. I did hit him, that sort of a thing. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. Um, yep. I I do want to talk about so I did um when I was reading I was very fascinated by this paper by was it Bering mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. on specifically prosody um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I I I encourage people to read that with an open mind but with some skepticism <laughs> at the same time mm -hmm. so I mean like so he's uh this is this is um an interesting type of paper when you are looking at it from a Conlanger perspective in that it's one of these kinds of papers where somebody is trying to explain all of the field with one particular <laughs> theoretical construct. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I mean, is useful for you if you understand how to absorb it because it's like, okay, this guy is trying to make everything about prosodic domains. Yes, right? to the point that even when he's talking about morphological marking, he's still trying to understand it in prosodic terms. Right, which, right, right. Which, yeah. which he kind of doesn't really do much. <laughs> um, so, so like, pay, read the whole paper because, like, because he's being honest about it, he does have a couple of sections at the end that are like miscellaneous, like, I don't know what to do with this. But <laughs> it is interesting because he's focusing everything on prosody and on the particular theory that he's doing and talking about, okay, uh, all of this is about getting the focus to the most prominent part of the sentence, the prosodically most part, prominent part. And you do that in several ways. You can move the like heads of intonation phrases. You can add new prosodic boundaries, 
Or he even goes and tries to explain some syntactic focus stuff by saying, okay, they are actually moving it to the prom more prominent part of the intonation phrase, which is really interesting. It, to me, I know a little bit about the, the, the theories that he's working in, and it gives you a lot of examples to work with. Mm -hmm. um, to to like see all kinds of different ways that focus is marked mm -hmm. and like the framing does actually kind of give you an idea of like well maybe a lot of these things could actually be explained by mm -hmm. prosody mm -hmm. it seems like some things like the morphology might not be able to be, yes. uh, but it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I would love to talk more about the morphology because that's what I did. My, my master's thesis on was morphological marking of argument focus. And wow, is there a lot you can do with it? Mm -hmm. Because yeah, it's everything from, you know, what when people think about focus marking morphology, often what you think of is sort of like a particle that, or, you know, a clitic or something that attaches to one side. And that's totally a thing. Um, Japanese kind of does this. It did it. It used to do it more. Um, Hausa does this. There's there's a lot of languages that have stuff like this, but that's definitely not the only way you can do it because you can also mark the presence of argument focus in the sentence, not on the argument at all, but on the verb. Right. Yeah. Which is it's an example of what I've heard called insubordination, where you have what used to be a subclause verb form that is now being used as a main clause verb form because the subclause or the main clause that it used to be in has just gone away. So you can get, especially with relativizers, sometimes with other kinds of nominalizers or even occasionally other kinds of subordinators, you will have a language that marks the presence of argument structure somewhere in a sentence by marking the verb as subordinated in one of these ways without actually giving any like main verb for it to be in. I think a good analogy for this is so like, it's basically what happens when you do a cleft like English. Um, it was you that I saw. Yeah. Where, or it was me that saw him. Maybe that's a better example. Um, where the it was part just kind of goes away after a while, and then you just have me who saw him. And right. what's the who doing in there? It's marking the presence of argument focus at this point. It's not doing any subordination at all. So you could do all sorts of things with that. You could mark it. Um, you could mark every sentence that has argument focus in it with a sentence level marker. You can mark only ones where the argument, the focused argument, also had to move. You can mark only the ones where the argument didn't move, which is a thing that Coptic does. And you can even have like extra information in these markers, especially if it is moving. Yukagiyat is the only language that I came across that does this when the argument doesn't move. But um, languages in West Africa and languages in um, like Mayan languages kind of do this, where you will move the focused argument to somewhere else to mark it as focused. You will change the verb to indicate that the argument has moved, but you're going to change it with different morphology depending on which argument it is that got moved. Okay. So mm -hmm. th that was something I was going to ask is if there's yeah. some kind of agreement morphology within that focus marker on the verb that yeah. tells you which argument. Yeah. 
I don't know that agreement is the right technical term for it, um, though it mm -hmm. is. It's called WH agreement in the literature, and sometimes that's used for other purposes as well. There's other reasons why things can move and trigger this agreement that is not necessarily just focus, but it is a big part of why you can get this morphology. Sometimes it's like weird reduced voice morphology or like subordination plus voice. Sometimes it's like like in Mayan languages, the contrast is between like you, you indicate which argument it is that moved based on whether you mark the verb at all or not. And so if you move the agent argument because ergativity, then you get a special like subordinator voice insubordination thing on the verb. But if you move the, the non-agent, then you don't have to do anything special to the verb. Which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that 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 makes sense. Yeah, so so that's an interesting thing to think about is that you don't have to, if you want morphological focus, you don't have to mark the argument directly. You can mark mm -hmm. it on the verb, and yep. you have different strategies for how much information you include on the verb when you're doing that. Mm -hmm. You can even get odd things like old Japanese has a weird system where you get different verb morphology depending on which focus marker you use next to the focused argument. <laughs> uh, with no regard to which argument it is? It doesn't matter which argument it is. It matters which focus marker you picked. And because this is old Japanese, we don't really have a great idea of what the different meaning is. But, you know, if there's a difference in meaning and if we're really actually understanding this this correctly or if this is kind of a traditional like description of it that turns out to not actually be accurate to how old Japanese was spoken. But it does seem to do this. Um, and you get so one the, the usual like focus marking verb form is a repurposed relativizer, but the, the less common one is actually a different kind of probably subordinator that lost basically all of its subordination functions by the time of old Japanese, and it's used for a couple of other random things. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting. Um, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm trying to absorb all of the information, uh, but uh, yeah. So, so you can have it um, morphological on mm -hmm. arguments. You can have it morphological on the verb, yep. noting the arguments. You can have it um, predicate focus. I assume is usually unmarked, right? Just yeah, because it's it's yeah. There's one language I have come across in, I think it's closely related to Somali. I don't know how to pronounce the name. It's um, where it has what's what I've called a symmetrical focus system. Yeah. Where if you have predicate focus, there's a marker on the verb. And if you have argument focus, there's a marker on the argument. And you will always get one of those two markers. Unless you have a WH okay. question, which is counted as inherently focused and doesn't take the special marker. And so you don't have a situation where there's just sort of no marking for focus at all. 
again, other than WH questions, you always right. have some sort of marking for something. And you also like um, do you Q and languages also use their their argument focus marker in a lot of predicate focus situations to the point it seems like they, they pop up almost every sentence. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's you could you you have sort of situations like that sometimes where predicate focus kind of looks like it's being marked for something, but not necessarily. Um, and then also topics like you may have topic marking by default, where right. predicate focus you can tell it's predicate focus because there's a topic marker and everything else is just left alone. There's an entire sort of traditional typological category of language that's called a topic comment language where mm -hmm, they do mm -hmm. topic fronting so often that they <laughs> needed a special name for it. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And I think I think that's worth talking about a little bit more as well. Um because you do have you have languages with morphological topic marking like Japanese is a fantastic example, it uses it all the time. You have languages that have word order based topic marking that is incredibly important to the grammar. I, I think I've seen examples of uh, some Sino-Tibetan language where, like, there's no argument marking at all. Like, there's no role marking. There's no grammatical relations marking. And there's only really information structure marking, and that's handled through word order. And so, like, you know, X, C, Y, like, who's doing the seeing and who's doing the... The, the being seen, you have to figure it out through implications from information structure rather than it actually being explicit in the grammar, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Um, and then also you have situations where, like in Japanese, again, the lack of topic marking is a proxy for focus marking. So um, in Japanese, by default, subjects are marked as topic because subjects and topic, again, like subject and topic are very, very closely related cross-linguistically. It's, it's very common for those to kind of overlap in a lot of ways. And so if you have a sentence in Japanese where the subject isn't a topic, you know it's not predicate focus because, yeah. yeah. And there's a different marker. You have a sort of special subject marker. It's not a focus marker in and of itself because it's used in other situations like in subordinate clauses where you just don't get topic marking. But it is still like hanging on here as, hey, this isn't a topic. And because you know it's not a topic, that means there's focus stuff going on more than just predicate focus. Um, and oh, and one super neat, this is this is kind of an aside, but when I was doing research, um, uh, me and some, me and uh, Logan and some other people stumbled across a, a paper on Sandawe, uh, which is one of those two West Af or East African languages that that have cliques surrounded by Bantu. And it has a really, really weird system where in a predicate focus sentence, every reference, well, everything that isn't a verb and isn't the subject gets a we're in the focus domain subject agreement clinic. If you've got oh. a really long sentence with like a bunch of ad positions and adverbs, then sure, you could get five of these clinics in a single sentence. But they're all basically saying, hey, this thing here isn't the topic. The subject is the topic. It's fine. If the subject is the focus, then you get a special subject is the focus marker next to the, the subject, and you don't get any of those non-topic markers anywhere else in the sentence. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It's, <laughs> it's um, very strange. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's other another option. Um, I do want to circle back to we talked mm -hmm. a lot about morphology since mm -hmm. that's your specialty here and it, we've it, talked, i'm a little uh, biased <laughs> yeah, and we've talked a little bit about uh 
prosodic structure and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the the basic thing here is that the if you're marking it prosodically the focus is usually going to be the most prominent thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the other thing i would want to say is like in terms of the syntactic marking mm-hmm. are there certain positions that are more common i know that topics are often fronted yes. and i've seen and I've seen focus like shoved to the end of the sentence or put right before the verb, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I I, th- I think there's a, there's a few different positions that I think are worth mentioning, and this is a, I will admit to not being as well informed about this part of things, um, but I do know a few things. The leftmost sort of the general orientation is that the leftmost position, the first thing in the sentence, is probably going to be the topic, or it's going to be the frame setter, which we can talk about in a minute, but. The topic is generally what going to be what comes first before any of the other stuff. And then often it's either right before the verb or right after the verb, depending on whether it's SOV or SVO. I think think that's how it works. Mm -hmm. You will get a focus slot typically. I, I don't know if there's languages where there's a focus slot at the very end after everything. There are languages that have a sort of what's called an anti topic way at the end <laughs> um which is basically like it's the topic sure but like we didn't really think you needed to say it because it should kind of be obvious from context but oh never mind we're gonna say it anyway like yeah i've never heard of him that guy oh, Where, oh, oh. yeah that's mm-hmm. that's 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 an interesting mm-hmm. one and that's you're also adding material it reminds me of I gotta mention Chinese once every month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to. Yes. Uh, uh, no, I, 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 I think of like there's a rare like, I think topics, I think focus is often like before the verb in Chinese. I need to bone mm-hmm. up on that and and figure that out. But um, there is like a structure where you copy the subject at the end of a sentence. And I'm not actually sure what that's doing information structure wise, (laughs) but it seems like it's drawing focus back to that word, um, that subject somehow, um, Mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. or uh, I I hate calling it emphasis, but it's some kind of emphatic thing going on. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, so, you often have focus like b- right before, right after the verb, and mm-hmm. then you mm-hmm. often will have topic at the beginning. That doesn't mean that's the, those are the only options, though. That, that, yeah, that you can means. have you can have any of them. Topic, I think, less likely, but you can have any of them just left where they are. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, focus. Yeah, especially focus, if you have. Definitely. Yeah, if you have like morphological focus marking, especially, or sometimes prosodic marking. English does this. You just leave whatever focused argument wherever it would go in the sentence naturally, and you just mark it as the focused thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And English is very happy to just like leave things there and let the the prosodic prominence yes. handle that out. You put a high pitch accent or a low pitch accent on depending on your framing and you, you got it. But yep. Uh, yep. Uh, I said... 
I had said pitch accent is is nonsense before. I'm not. This is a different pitch this accent. Is, yes, this because is because linguists linguists cannot ever coordinate on their terminology. <laughs> oh my god! At all, it's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. I've, I've definitely had things where it's like I'm gonna. I need to come up with a word for this, and I've seen it referred to as this in this other paper, but I'm not going to use that word because that means something completely different most of the rest of the time. I, I do want to talk about a, a couple of those um, extra sort of categories alongside plain old topic and focus, because again, I mentioned anti-topic, which is kind of an afterthoughty topic that we're kind of, I don't have a great handle on the semantics of it, but it, kind of the idea is we're going to throw this in at the end because we had to say it, but we kind of were already past the point of saying the topic by the time we realized that. Um, and the other thing I think that's maybe a little bit more prominent is what's called a frame setter which mm -hmm. is usually it's an adverbial kind of a thing that comes at the very, very, very beginning of your sentence. Something like, yesterday I went to the store. You know, at the store I saw a man. Where they're sort of coordinating where in time or space this action is happening and how that has sort of progressed from maybe other, you know, earlier points in the sentence. And these are often marked the same as topics um maybe they, they go outside the topic i think generally um but you can get topic marking reused for frame setters they feel very topic e in japanese for example you can get two topic markers in a sentence because one of them is actually the frame setter it's just reusing topic marking um i have seen an example of a language from the amazon that seems to use focus marking instead as a way to do frame setters which is a little bit unintuitive to me but okay sure i guess you can do that or you can just use you know you don't have to necessarily have any special marking for that you could just totally use word order and prosody like the same way i just did in english but that is kind of a separate category that often overlaps a lot with topic or maybe with focus okay. um and okay. can be kind of confused for it but it's a different kind of thing so, so the frame setter, come go over with me again. What exactly is the frame setter doing? What is the the semantics of a frame setter? Yeah, so it's you use it to kind of introduce the setting of a sentence, like in time or space. So okay. again, like yesterday, I went to the store. Okay. There's almost a contrastive okay. topic kind of feel to it. Like on some other day, I didn't go to the store, but we're talking about yesterday. And in particular on yesterday, I went to the store. And then when I got there, not before, not after, but when I got there, a certain thing happened. You know, that's that sort of a thing. So something that pops to mind as a thing to compare that's non-linguistic is an establishing shot in a movie. Very you know, much, where they, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. like, uh, you know, if you're watching Stargate SG-1 and they show the front of the, the like the front doors of their mountain facility you know that you're at the SGC today exactly uh, but that uh, yeah that the but like linguistically that's like at the store or yesterday or whatever this mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. you you're setting your discourse frame for this particular sentence exactly and, and okay. maybe maybe following but yeah yeah mm -hmm. um okay so that makes that makes sense. I just like, I I I think your your initial explanation went straight through my head out to the other <laughs> side. So I needed to I be clear on it. No, it's fine. Uh, all right. Yeah. Any other like burning things to talk about with information yeah. structure? 
one more thing I want to I want to to do briefly is well okay I, have, I actually have kind of two different things. One is I do want to highlight one last way of doing topic and focus marking that again English makes takes full advantage of this particular strategy and where you're not really marking anything outright you're sort of repurposing other marking to hint at information structure categories. So I think clefting is a great example of this. It was me that you saw. On the surface, like, there's nothing about this sentence that means anything different from you saw me. Right. In terms of just like semantic content, it's just been rearranged. It's we've we've per- repurposed existing machinery to rearrange the sentence in a more complicated way, and it's kind of like a Gricean inference almost of like why did you mess up this sentence? Oh, there must be some sort of meaning you're trying to convey with the change to the sentence structure. It's probably focused because you've moved a thing to the left. You've made it the the, the complement of a of a copula, so it's probably focus. Again, there's nothing in those constructions that explicitly says focus. It's just you're using existing machinery to make the sentence more complicated, and so implying that there's something special about it compared to the more straightforward way to say the sentence. And then kind of on the flip side, what English does with topicality is it basically just infers it from definiteness, which is very similar to topicality. Usually definite things have to be identifiable. Topics usually have to be identifiable. Right. And subjecthood, like generally topics or subjects cross-linguistically and in English, that's one of the best ways to make something a topic is to use voice morphology and make it the subject. Right, right. Yeah. So both of those are sort of other ways that you can get at information structure without having to do any morphology or even any real sort of concrete, like, we use word order to mark this in a very explicit way. Like, you don't have to have explicit marking, even though probably most languages do. You can get away with repurposing existing things to hint at it in various ways. And I think you may have touched on this earlier, but like the clefting thing... Mm-hmm. That particular strategy may be related to the fact that a lot of morphological focus markers are related to relative markers. Yes, yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. the, your your relativizer becomes a focus marker because people are doing this weird thing with sentences. Exactly. And that can, you know, with some reanalysis of this biclausal cleft construction as monoclausal actually, then suddenly you have sentence level marking on your verb that's derived from a relativizer or something. And you also probably have like what I've called argument adjacent focus marking that's derived from a copula which is another, it's a common way to get one of these, to get a, a focus yeah. marker that's just right next to your verb is a copula. Hausa's done it. Um, Singhala's done it off the top of my head. You've grammaticalized a copula into a focus marker through this kind of construction. So that's that's a common grammaticalization source for focus morphology. It's not the only one, but it's I think it's yeah. probably the, the easiest one to access. Definitely, this is something that people may want to actually dive into and find different ways that this mm-hmm. happens. But like I can imagine a passive marker coming to mark focus uh, mm. like on the verb mm-hmm. or something that reintroduces a uh, passive subject 
having yeah. something to do with becoming focus marking, like buy in English or bay mm -hmm. in Chinese. Mm -hmm. The the yeah these things that are saying, okay, we pacifized this sentence, but we're actually going to put the original agent back in for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see that happening. Yeah. Uh, another grammatical pa grammaticalization pathway we're thinking about is topicalization and morphological topic marking, which can often come from third-person pronouns because mm -hmm. you can, one of the ways to do focus your uh, topic movement is left dislocation and left dislocation sometimes you know one of the ways to do it results in there's still a pronoun in the, in the sentence because you've moved you've moved the thing you move kind of almost outside the sentence so yeah, yeah you know you know me i know how this works where you you have both the fronted topic and then the co-referential pronoun in the sentence itself um, right. And so that co-referential pronoun for, you know, third person situations can end up being reanalyzed as an actual topic marker. That's that's what it's doing there. Right. Yeah. And then it's, that it's, can. Oh, go ahead. It's it's kind of like the if you if you do generative syntax, which I don't necessarily recommend, uh, <laughs> then it's kind of. It's kind of like the pronoun is occupying the the trace that that was left behind, and yeah. then after that, it gets reanalyzed as a focus marker and or a exactly. topic marker, and then mm -hmm. maybe even like gloms on to the topic. <laughs> yeah, my my Conling Media has a whole complex of different markers that are all ultimately from the third person pronoun su where it still has that as the third-person pronoun. It has two different topic markers, one very reduced one for basic topic sentence uh, situations, and then just s with an epithetic vowel as the marker for, um, for contrastive topics and other sorts of things like that. And then that has in turn been grammaticalized into a um, conditional subordinator. So you stick it after a verb, you sort of topicalize a verb basically and that's been under that's that was sort of a way to do conditional marking which is a thing otherwise as well like Japanese has examples where you you take a verb you subordinate it and then you stick a topic marker on it and now it's a conditional marking yeah uh, i just realized that we have actually the precursor structure of that in some dialects of english you can say like that girl she's the one that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Clean the office or something, whatever. Yep. yep. Yeah. So the 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 we do end up like you can find English examples for a lot of these things, which is mm -hmm. an interesting thing. Obviously, people want to stay away away from English a lot in the <laughs> online community, but it's useful to to like know about something and then say, oh, English actually halfway almost does this. Um, yes. Especially things like this that are actually, I think, cross-linguistically, well, in that case, it's it's not. But there's other there's other information structure things that English does that I think is cross-linguistically pretty unusual in just how little mm -hmm. it actually does in terms of information structure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably... We're probably good for time. If you mm -hmm, have any mm -hmm. final thoughts that you want to share that uh, you think people need to know. Uh, well, 
I'm not sure if this you can you can edit this out of the final podcast if you feel like it's extraneous, but I do feel like it's worth mentioning that these sorts of topicality and focus processes can also be steps on the road to other things. For example, French has grammaticalized its former pronouns into basically polypersonal agreement prefixes because of topicalization fronting and that sort of uh, leftist location thing, where instead of the pronoun being grammaticalized into a topic marker, the pronoun was grammaticalized into an agreement prefix. And so now you have to, you know, you still have to have the what used to be fronted topic there, but you also have this agreement structure of, you know, these used to be where you put your nouns, but we started treating the nouns as topics or whatever, and now they're agreement kind of a thing. Uh, that's an interesting take on <laughs> the French polypersonal agreement. So I think I will leave that in. But yeah, that's uh, that is super interesting. Um, <laughs> well, it's been really great talking to you, Aiden. And yeah, it's, it's I, been fun. This is making up for me spending years never actually writing a Fiat Lingua article about all this stuff. So now I can feel like I at least put something out about it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I I am glad that you did. I just uh, before we go, I will say um, I I have created myself an account on Mastodon. Uh, it's um, I believe it's at G.A. Corley at mstdn dot social, which I realize now after I did that that I should have chosen a server with an easier to say name. Um, <laughs> don't know if I'm going to do a Conlangery account there, but um, I, I, you know, Twitter may explode before this episode goes up, and mm -hmm. I don't know where Lexember is going to be or. Uh, whether or how I would do the thing that I had tried have tried to do for a couple of years with gathering up everybody's links upward. So um, mm -hmm. if anybody it has ideas on that, yeah. Well, I've done I've done I did Twitter and Tumblr at the same time once, but Tumblr search is really mm. awful. So <laughs> it's. It, mm. it it's it's hard to like actually gather all of the Lexember tagged posts on Tumblr, but we'll see, <laughs> and we'll see if I have time too. But mm. uh, anyway, thank you, Aiden, for being on and Thanks talking to me. us. I yeah, we've had we've had episodes on topic and focus before, but I think sometimes it's good to revisit. Uh, with someone with some extra expertise. Um, <laughs> thank you for being on and thank everybody for listening and happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Conlangery is supported by our patrons at Patreon. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash conlangery and pledge your monthly amount. A special thanks to Ezekiel Fortzmender and Mintaka and all those who have chosen to support us. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike license. Conlangery's website was created by Bianca Richards. Our theme music is by Null Device. <laughs>